Welcome to the Culture of Leadership. We have conversations that help you develop and become a more confident leader. What life-changing moment have you had? Statistically, very few people have had a life-changing moment like my next guest. This is my conversation with Brett Cunnellan. In March 2016, while surfing, Brett was attacked by a great white shark. He was inches from death. We briefly talked about the attack, but the shark attack is just a small part of his story. As Brett explains, it was this life-changing moment that was the catalyst for many more. His greatest life-changing moment was his ability to develop a distinct mindset towards resilience. It's resilience that's helped him become the impactful leader he is today. Brett's inspiring spirit is set to be showcased in a documentary called Attacking Life, releasing on Stan on the 9th of March, 2023. You won't want to miss it. This is the Culture of Leadership podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Brett. What was Brett Cunnellan like pre-2016? You're only 22, I think, when it happened, wasn't it? Yeah, so I was 22 um, at, at the time of, of said shark attack. At that point in my life, before this event, mate. Yeah. So before before that point, I was one hundred percent ingrained and and involved in surfing. My my entire life was just anything to do with surfing. I I loved it and I was involved. It was at like not only a sport I enjoyed doing. I did it competitively. Like it was my dream to make it onto the world tour and stuff like that. I think everyone has that dream, like as as a young kid. But that's something that I'd held for a long time, especially as I got older and. And continued to surf competitively, but I mean, even my, my job was in surfing. I always had the idea that I'd love to make the tour, but if that didn't work out, I wanted to be somewhere in, in the industry. So when I finished school, went and did surfing studies at university, um, which is a, a course up on the Gold Coast there. That was me moving away from home, being independent and going and doing that. When I came back, I actually started my own surf school, managed a surf shop. Everything in my life was all to do with surfing. It's, it's funny. Like I always talk about the difference between me before and me after. And I'm sure we'll go into this a, a little bit later on, but even down to where I would go on holidays, I would never even consider going on holidays somewhere if there wasn't a possibility of me surfing. So the answer to that question, who was, who was Brett before the attack is just a surfer, like someone that was a hundred percent in love with the sport and the community and everything about it. And that was a big, a big part of who I was and a big part of my direction in life. It was all just chasing, you know, this lifestyle of either being a professional surfer or, or doing something within that industry somewhere. So in saying that, what sort of traits did you have? I, I always say I was pretty driven, especially to be the best surfer that I could have been, because that was the primary goal was, was trying to chase that dream of becoming a pro. So surfing as much as possible, getting into training, being committed to events and things like that. That's that's one side of things. So I'd say there was there's a certain amount of dedication that it takes to wake up every single morning when it's, you know, it's cold in winter and you don't want to go surfing and making you surf, making yourself go out when it's awful just in order to try and get better. I'd say that was was one part of it. And another part of it that I think also kind of relates to being a surfer is a slightly selfish I suppose, point of view. There's, there is a selfish drive when it comes to being a surfer. And I always say this is something that surfers probably wouldn't agree with, especially when you're deep in the sport, but it is a very selfish thing. Obviously, it's an individual sport. Um, it's something that you do for, you know, 
personal glory in a way like especially when you're competing it's you know it's you versus everyone else and it's it's pretty brutal in that that regard as well but even just when you're when you're surfing normally you want to be on the best wave of the day if someone else is on the best wave of the day not everyone's like this but i certainly was i, I would want that to be me so i'd say there was a, a lot of i was a very competitive person um, because i did have this overwhelming desire to try and make surfing work and i did take it incredibly serious like probably too serious for you know what a lot of people do you know the reason a lot of people do pick up surfing for is just because it's fun it's healthy it's great to be outside in nature but i think it's a little bit different when you when you have this goal of of trying to be a professional surf you need to take it you know every surf kind of counts as far as getting better so yeah they're, they're probably the traits that i would say define me as a surfer um, i was very very driven very hungry probably a little bit selfish in a way but at the same time pretty quiet i was pretty reserved with with my goals i never really vocalized the fact that i wanted to make the tour it was something that i kind of held pretty close to me and that's a a strange one because i remember when i was younger and doing all these surfing camps I, they would always have the bit about mindset and you know being confident when you're going into heats and i would come across kids sometimes that would be overconfident not only in their ability but that's how they were going to go into the heat and you know take all the best waves and they're like yeah i'm going to go out there and i'm i'm, I'm going to win i'm going to be the person who's going to make it through this heat and i just wasn't really like that but there was a fire within me that like once i hit the water i knew that you know this this was kind of my moment it was me versus everyone else and it wasn't really that outward really overt competitiveness but it was really competitive within within myself and i think the hard thing with surfing is there's there's a lot of failure that comes along with it. And I did learn a lot about failing because like my dad always told me, it's a brutal sport to watch your kids do because everyone surfs for 20 minutes and half of the field goes home after that 20. There's only one winner at the end of the day. So a lot of people are going to go home disappointed. So I think dealing with that, I was never great at losing. I would always, you know, shut down, not want to talk to anyone, be upset and stuff like that, as, as I'm sure most kids are. But I did take that stuff really personally and especially like I was not at the top of the sport when I was growing up. I was I was good, but not one of the ones with a huge amount of promise where you could pick out and say, you know, you're definitely going to do stuff with surfing in your life. It was something that came along later. I actually developed a lot more when I got smarter and could start to surf heats properly. So because of that, I think learning how to lose and, and learning how to react in those situations definitely helped me um, later on. And I think, you know, when we do get into those life-changing sort of incidents and we, and we do talk about the shark attack, I think having that sort of mindset had helped me a little bit in dealing with, with loss in, in a weird way. I'm not sure if that's, you know, all I'd put it down to, but I learned a lot through being a surfer growing up and, and everything that comes with that. Yeah, it certainly sounds like you had a lot of great traits and i think i've read lots of stories about professional athletes and a lot of them talk about that level of selfishness needed in order to be the best at what you wanted to do so yeah certainly understand where you're coming from let's talk about the attack now as we've said and in prepping for the show we don't want this to be the be all and end all of the show but it needs to set the context and then where we're moving forward and and what you're particularly doing and all these great things you've been doing and plan to do into the future mate so tell us a bit about this day in early 2016 i think the easiest way to kind of talk about the attack without doing the the play-by-play -play, um, as i suppose you'd describe it is to talk about it as a life-changing moment because the attack did obviously change my life in a significant way 
And I do often get asked the question, like, what was the moment that you knew that everything was going to change, that everything was going to be different? And I think there's a number of different points throughout the attack itself that I could point to and be like, that's that sliding doors moment where you know everything's going to be different, you know everything's going to change. And I, I probably would weigh it up between a couple. Like the first one would be the moment when you realize what's happening, when you're sitting there on your surfboard, get hit from the right side by what feels like a bus, thrown off your surfboard. And before you can even look around to see what that was, there's a shark biting your leg. And that moment where time you know, slows down to the point of stopping and you're taking in all the fine details, like the feel of the shark's skin, the lack of sound in that moment, even the, the look in the shark's eyes, which is something that can invoke a lot of terror in a lot of people. But I think just looking into the shark's eyes and their eyes that have no remorse is something that you can't reason with. You can't tell it to stop. Like in a weird way, sharks, I, I do have a lot of respect for them now from that image in knowing that it was just doing something that it's been designed to do over thousands of years, which is to find things to hunt and kill. And I was just unlucky to be prey in that moment. So I think the moment of, of realizing the enormity of, you know, your worst nightmares coming to fruition, like in front of you, that could be the moment that I was like, you know, my life was going to change. But I think there's probably too much action in that moment to, to say that was it. The second moment I probably point to was after I made the mistake of pulling away from the shark, which is natural reaction, but as a shark is grabbing onto my leg and you pull away from it, it doesn't let go. Like it holds onto that bit of flesh. And from pulling away from the shark, I sacrifice a large chunk of, of my left leg in order to try and escape. And the next moment is as I'm swimming towards the beach, you know, swimming for my life and having this thought come over me, which is, I wonder if this shark's going to come back a second time. And that's almost as terrifying as that first moment of looking down and seeing what's happening because in having that thought, I look over my shoulder and actually see it coming back and was able to put my hands out just in time to try and stop it. And the feeling with like my hands both planted on its nose, it's pushed me through the water and there's the sinking feeling of like, am I ever going to be able to escape this thing? It's already, you know, taken a chunk of my leg and it's swum back. It's coming back again. Is it going to give up? Like you, there's a lot of unknown. And I think the feeling of helplessness in a moment like that could be something where you get a lot of perspective on a how incredible this creature is at, at what it's doing but how insignificant and small and weak you feel in a moment like that so that could be a moment the third one i'd probably point to would be when my good friend joel uh he hears my screams for help bravely and luckily paddles towards me at this point a wave's hit me and it's actually away from the shark because it's kind of pushed me in far enough i'm standing up it's about waist deep and he drags me into the beach, essentially saves my life just by taking me towards the shore. But he drags me up the sand and runs off to get some help. And the moment of laying there, kind of realizing the enormity of I've just been attacked by a shark. Although I haven't looked down at my leg yet, I don't know how bad the damage is. But I know it's serious because I'm starting to feel lightheaded. I know I've lost a lot of blood. Seeing Joel's reaction, you know, my friend that saved me, seeing his reaction, I knew it was bad. Even, you know, down to the fact that, you know, my stomach is hurting, you know, my organs starting to shut down. I know this is serious and that feeling of, is this what it feels like to die? I think that's a significant moment where you do, well, I mean, that's not a moment many people get to experience. That could easily be one where I look back on and say, you know, that was the moment I knew my life was going to change forever as well. But when I weigh up all those things within the attack, I think the moment that truly, I suppose, impacted me in a significant way was when I woke up in hospital and got to 
take stock of the situation, I suppose, and reflect a little bit about what had happened. And waking up in hospital, talking to doctors, they've told me the damage. Like, you've lost three quarters of your left quad. You're lucky to be alive, but we're trying to figure out how to save your leg. Uh, we're looking into different operations so we won't have to amputate. And the enormity of something like that, like losing your leg and amputation is scary enough, but they go on to to do two operations where they clean out my leg and decide that they can do an operation they've only ever done once before where they take my left lat muscle from my back and implant that into my quad where where I'd lost all that muscle. The reason they did that was to cover the bone so then the leg would actually stay alive and they wouldn't have to amputate it. But then after that, they, they're kind of giving me the prognosis of what to expect moving forwards. And this is where they tell me, you know, losing three quarters of your left quad is, is no joke. So the function that, that a quad has is significant in helping you walk. So they're like, that's going to be a massive mountain to climb in order to just walk again. And then they go on to say that's going to have impacts on you being active. And they're like, you're never going to surf again. And hearing them say, you're never going to surf again. The only thing they said for sure, like it was 100% you're never going to surf again. Whereas the other ones like walking is going to be a big mountain to climb. Being active is going to be a massive challenge, but you will never surf again was the thing that changed my life forever because of the person that I was. I mentioned earlier all the ways my life was involved in surfing and hearing those words, it's kind of like a tearing away of my purpose, my identity as a person because surfing was all that I had. And for me, it was laying in that hospital bed, feeling overwhelmingly alone and isolated and having these thoughts of what's my life going to look like without surfing is the moment I knew that it was going to take a completely different road to the one that I was currently on. So I'd say that was in a way, probably the best way to recount the attack in the lens of a life-changing moment. Because at that point, I didn't know what the path forward looked like. I didn't know what I was going to be able to do in order to, you know, walk again, let alone try and get back in the water and surf or anything like that. So that was a moment that caused me to really sit back and reflect on a lot of things in life, not just in surfing, but other things that meant a lot to me. And there was a lot of uncertainty in that moment. There was a lot of, you know, not sure. I had no idea what to expect over the next coming months or years or what my life would look like in the future. And that was a really tough place to be. And, and I suppose being in that that situation when you do feel so alone and so isolated. It was not only laying there with a physical injury, but it was it was really starting to affect me mentally as well. And I think that's where you know people say hitting rock bottom is is the time to make a change. You don't always have to hit a rock bottom, but it's noticing that point where you have to actually step back and and ask yourself what you're going to do moving forward. Like, are you going to be defined by this thing that's happened to you, or are you going to try your best? And it's not easy in a lot of moments, but try your best to look at it in a slightly different perspective and, and try and make the best effort you can to move forward with whatever it is that you've got in front of you. And for me, in in those times, it, it was just the uncertainty, I suppose, that that I really, really struggled with. And, and that was the biggest challenge moving forward was to try and overcome that in order to try and progress and make some sort of life of the expectations that I had. And was there a defining moment that you turned this event and your mindset around into something that could become more positive and if so what was that defining time yeah the the defining moment was usually these are the hard ones to to pick up like especially as you're going through it like there was obviously the support that i had was was huge especially in the early days when i felt a little bit less alone 
Um, I always say hospital is a really hard place to spend time when you're in a situation like that because it is really, really lonely. Um, not only like did I feel isolated in what I was going through by being the only person that had been attacked by a shark. I mean, the odds of being attacked by a shark are one in 3.6 million. So you feel pretty statistically isolated in a time like that. But I think in the times where you feel the most alone, it's when, you know, at night times, I always say in hospital, because that's when all the support goes home. And it's just you laying in a hospital bed with your thoughts. And as much support as I had, I still really struggled in those moments. And support is great. Like you get, I was overwhelmed with the amount of messages that I had. And I always say like, it sucks that it takes something negative for you to realize the amount of support that's out there, but it's often just the way that these things work. But there was one message in particular that completely shifted my perspective on, on my whole recovery. And it came from someone who was integral to my, my recovery in the end, which is my physiotherapist. His name's Scott Mutton. He sent me a message when I was in hospital still early days, just introducing himself. He was actually a friend of Joel's. But he just said, I run a local physiotherapy clinic in Kayama. I'm not sure what your plans are for rehab when you get out. But if you want to work with us, we'd love to help you get better. And just hearing that tangible help was was a big difference maker for me because well wishes are great and they do make you feel supported. But it's not until someone says, like, I wanna I wanna help you get better, I wanna see you take those first steps is that for me was a big shift in in knowing that there's more support out there than than just these messages. So obviously I was stoked with that. I replied to him and said, can't wait. Like I'd love to get in there and, and work with you. And the message he sent back from that was the, this is the moment I'd say kind of turned it around where he said, that's great. I'll see you soon. Just a few words of advice. He said, you've obviously got a long and a hard road ahead of you. He said, people don't fail from aiming too high and missing. They fail from aiming too low and hitting. He said, look ahead with determination and set lofty goals. So he's obviously talking about it in a goal setting sense. And that just got me to look at the expectations that I'd been given by doctors and, and kind of got me to sit back and ask myself, like, am I going to be defined by these expectations that the doctors had for me? Which doctors always, they've, you know, they're notorious for giving the worst case scenario because they have to. It's hard as a patient to hear that. But you have to ask yourself, am I going to be defined by these expectations or am I going to try the most, you know, try the most with the opportunity that I do have in order to make the most out of my situation? So I was looking at, you know, what the doctors have said and what I could do to actually try and bounce back. And I always laugh about this because that caused me to set the biggest goal that I could think of in that moment, which was walking again. And I thought that I was being so heroic and I was being so amazing by saying, I'm going to get out of this hospital bed. I'm going to get back on my feet. I'm going to walk again. And it, in the moment, it felt really empowering to be able to do that. But when I first got out of hospital and I met Scott and I hit him with that goal that I was like, you know, I'm going to, going to walk again. He was like, Mate, I've already planned for you to get back to work and to get around town. Like you're, you're going to be walking again. He's like, I want you to look higher than that. I want you to look at surfing again. And it wasn't until there was that moment of like, Oh, I actually realized what he meant by that message. Like I, even for me who had this amazing moment of clarity where I was like, I'm going to defy what the doctors have told me. I still wasn't aiming high enough. And I suppose the beauty in aiming higher than what you expect yourself and what other people expect is if you have a goal, you're going to do everything you can to try and achieve it. Whether it be something in a recovery, whether it be something personal or something in business, if you set something, it doesn't just happen overnight. You've got to actually put things in place to try to, to try to achieve it. And by putting things in place, you're going to give yourself the best chance of, of achieving this amazing thing that you've set for yourself. But often, if you even get halfway there, you're going to surpass what a lot of these expectations were below. 
So for me to actually get back to work, that was well surpassing my, my goal of trying to just walk again. And, and that's something that has definitely flowed on into my life later on is that the way in which you can set ambitious goals and not only just to look at what the top goal is, but all the things that you can achieve on the way to getting there. So that was the moment for me where I was like, okay, if I'm going to set this goal of surfing, it's not just something I'm going to set because it's something that feels good and it feels right and it feels nice to prove the doctors wrong and everything like that. But there are going to be certain points along there where I'm going to reach them and it is going to be a massive improvement on the person that I, not only I thought I was going to be, but the doctors and everyone around me had kind of hoped for me as well. So it was more just the, say the, that message from Scott and just the mindset of how you can look at a, a challenge or how you can look at your own situation was a big way in helping me actually look at it as a, a growing opportunity because it, that's definitely not something I was looking at as a growing opportunity early on when you've lost so much. So I, I think that perspective was was one of the big things that, that helped me shift my entire mindset towards the challenge that was now in front of me. Yeah, well, that's a, a very special defining moment, such a beautiful leadership example, to be honest. and. The way I would wrap that up is you just had somebody who actually believed in your greater potential and also had the skill set to help you reach your greater potential. That must have been enormous for you. Yeah, definitely. I think that's there's a lot to be said about working with the right people. And Scott's not someone that I just worked with through the recovery. He's been ever-present in my life ever since. Um, I actually saw him yesterday as well. So he's been a, a massive support to me in a number of different ways. And that's, that's something that kind of I looked at early on and noticed the importance of having people to not only help you achieve your goals in the physical sense or like in, in actually getting there to tick them, but having someone to support you through that, whether it be like a, a coach or whether it be a good friend or someone that can just give you a bit of perspective was incredibly important. And I think I, I looked at how a lot of other people go through, especially, you know, physical setbacks in their life where they might have an injury or something like that. No, so you have amazing support when you're in hospital, but when you leave there, you kind of left to figure it out by yourself. And it's only really due to fortune or, or luck that you can come across someone that can help you in more than one way, like I was lucky to have with Scott. So that's I, I suppose that was part of my reason for wanting to share my story later on because I, I know that a lot of people do need that bit of perspective on on their setbacks or or their own their own journey that they're on, which is sometimes a, a really hard thing to find. Have you ever considered the traits that served you well in wanting and believing you can aspire to Scott's helping you set this hairy audacious goal, that shark attack pre-Brett and what you had in place, what were your traits, your DNA aspects that helped you believe you could actually do that and make the steps to do it? Yeah, I, I think... A lot of that does come from like there were certain traits that I had beforehand, like the the surfer or the competitor that I was beforehand. Like I was always aiming for this this goal of being a professional surfer, which is incredibly unattainable when you look at it statistically. Right? There's 36 people that get to compete on the world tour, and that's that's the the dream that everyone wants to live. There's millions of surfers out there, so in order to to have that as a goal, it is very very audacious, and the chances of it actually happening. That, you know, you are competing against a lot of people to try and break through and to try and get there. So I, I think maybe having, having that mindset was, was beneficial in, in just looking at the fact that even though I did have this big goal, if I couldn't do it, then, 
you know, how was I going to deal with the, you know, the, the likelihood of failure or the likelihood of not being able to achieve it. And I think that's where the way in which I structured my life beforehand, like I, I had a plan B or a backup or something that, that I could lean on where I was like, at least I was able to do that. Or, you know, I now have this opportunity in front of me. And I, I think that was something that probably when I look at, I haven't really considered, you know, the, the traits that I had beforehand and how they've affected me, you know, in throughout that recovery. But that's probably one that I would say is, is an important one that not only just in a recovery like that, that's important in all aspects of life. Like there's, there's a lot of people that have a difficult time dealing with failure. And if anything, that'll usually stop people from taking the first step rather than getting three quarters of the way through and realizing it's too tough. There are definitely people that are willing to try anything and, and they'll, they're ones that will, you know, they'll, they'll realize it by trying it and trying something again and trying something again. But a lot of people, especially in my life that I talk to about this, they struggle to take that first step because of, you know, that, that fear of failure down the track. And I think that's something that it does come through. You know, I would say it, it's a lot easier to take, you know, the, the second step and the third step than it is that very first one. So, you know, in order to be able to do those in the first place, you need to, to actually just kind of have that almost like just do it attitude, but it's, it's with a bit of caution in, in looking at what goals you're setting and having that purpose to it as well. I think you talked about mindset earlier as well and certainly takes extreme strength of mind. Were there any particular strategies or things that helped you in that mindset space? To yeah. Get through? I hadn't thought about it too much and it wasn't really until I got into my recovery that I learned a little bit more about that. I was doing the recovery at the start based on necessity. I needed to get back a weight, like a basic way of life. So in order to do that, I needed to go and you know, stand on my feet for, for hours just in order to be able to weight bear and stuff like that. So that had let me go to the kitchen or go to the toilet. And when that's your only option to live, it's, it is out of necessity and it doesn't take too much of a mindset. Well, I, I didn't find it took too much of a mindset in that moment and it's different for everyone. But when I got into the more progressive parts of the recovery, you know, starting to walk again and, and learning to, to run, and, you know, working towards that goal of surfing, it wasn't until I ran into another professional surfer who gave me a great bit of advice. And I ran into him by chance just at a cafe um, close by where I live. And he had actually suffered a, a serious injury around the same time as me. And his was a, a brain injury. So it's not one where he could work on a physical recovery. His was more him being patient and, and just working at the little things every single day. And the bit of advice that he gave me was it's not about necessarily making these enormous leaps every time you go to the gym or every time you go into the recovery. He's like, the thing you want to focus on is just being a little bit better than yesterday. Just making sure you do something to improve the person that you were yesterday. And over time, those things will add up. And I think that was a, a big way of helping me actually come to terms with what, what the recovery was going to be like, because at the start, the leaps and bounds felt like leaps and bounds, but as I got further and further into it, the gains get smaller and smaller, and it's a little bit harder to to be okay with putting in the same amount of effort but getting a little bit less in return. So having that mindset, it made me realize that, yes, it was going to be a long road and it was still going to be difficult even though I'd had this early success. But if I was going to get to where I wanted to get eventually, then the mindset was going to be about taking those small steps and not necessarily, 
you know, looking at the peak of the mountain at, at all times. It was just one step in front of the other. And I know that's the biggest cliche ever. And you've probably heard it yourself a number of different times, but it's a cliche for a reason. It's a cliche because it's true. Um, if we can just focus on doing that little bit every single day, they'll add up over time and, and, you know, hopefully get you to where you want to go. And doing that little bit each and every day, mate, I have to ask, do you know exactly how many surfs you've had since you set your goal of, I'm going to surf again? I have no idea at this stage. It's, it's been, it's been a while. So it, it took me five months from attack to getting in the water again, which seems like a very short amount of time, especially based on what my expectations were in the start. But when I say getting back in the water, that was a surf on, on a longboard and in very small waves, more just for the purpose of getting in the water, not so much for the purpose of being the surfer that I was before. So. The process of getting back on the board was almost just like another step along the way, but it really was when I was able to start surfing, that's when things made a bit more sense to me because the progression was something that I related to and it was almost like starting the sport again. And I'd been through that learning curve before. So it was starting on a longboard, making sure I was in the water as much as possible. And then I'd slowly progress and I'd go from like a long board to a mini mal and then onto a fish and a smaller board with a little bit more performance. And the whole goal there was I really wanted to get back and compete again and get into the, you know, essentially regain the surfing that I, I had for such a large period of, of my life. So going through, you know, being able to step back on a board was an amazing feeling. Not only just being able to go back in the water and how great that made me feel, but there's also that feeling of being able to tick off this enormous goal that I'd, I'd set with Scott. And then like everyone says, it must have felt good to, you know, go back into the doctor's office and, you know, show him a photo of you surfing. And like, it's, it's almost, it's almost like the big stuff for you to the, the doctors. And I always felt that if it weren't for the doctors telling me that that was not going to be achievable, then I don't think it would have felt the same. And I don't think I would have had the same perspective as I did. So I've actually seen my surgeon a bunch of times since as well. And, and he's someone who is great to, to kind of bounce off. Cause he's, he's just amazed. Like he's, he's like, I can't believe, you know, that you are not only doing the things that you're doing, but, you know, showing me that I can do that surgery on other people and, and show them what you're doing. And that's that hope that, you know, as bad as their situation is, then like, look, look at what is possible, even though the, the outlook in the beginning may look bleak. It's more about just looking at your own situation and asking yourself what you can do in order to to make the most of that. So, yeah, I think it is hard to say like I've counted the amount of surf since and looked at those little bits of of improvement or, you know, those little steps every single day. But I do take a lot of stock in the perspective that I've been able to gain afterwards. Um, I mean, hindsight is an amazing tool and something that I make sure I use as often as possible whether it's talking about my experience, whether it's, you know, reconnecting with those people throughout my experience to kind of, you know, look at how much I've grown since then, or even just looking back on my photos. And like, I, I started a, a journal where I write about certain experiences I've been through and, and a lot of other things as well. And a big reason for that is just to make sure I can keep learning from my own experience, because it is very valuable, not only to other people, but to me as well. And from your journal, I have to say, I do love the sweet, sour banana concept. Yeah. Just the humorous in our listeners a little bit because i think people can get a lot from this absolutely just describe to us a little bit about the sweet sour banana concept yes <laughs> this is something that came came about when we were in hawaii filming for my documentary and 
there was a crew of 10 of us that were over there. It was to shoot my big goal at the time, which was to paddle between Molokai Island and Oahu. So we had five guys that were over there to, to film that. And then we all took our partners over there as well and, and made it into a little bit of a holiday. So we'd kind of go off and, and we'd be filming all day and then we'd all connect at night over dinner or something like that. And we would go through the sweet sour banana of everyone's days. And that consists of the best part of your day, which is the sweet, and then the sour, which is the worst part of your day, and then the banana, which is the funniest part of your day. So it was just a really good way of, of reflecting on everyone's days. And I mean, it's, it's really hard to remember those unless you actually address them and address them to a group. Like you'd think it'd be easy to remember the best, the worst, and the funniest part of your day. But so often, you know, you, you sit down and you're like, what was the funniest part of my day? Like, and yeah, it forces you to actually think about the day and uh, it is a really good reflecting exercise but it got us to connect and it was it was really funny as well and it's been a constant that we we kept doing um even after we came back from hawaii and i thought it was just good to do for for my entire year so i wrote about that for for the journal and and it helped me reflect on what was a really really big year um in a bit more depth than like i was i was able to achieve this goal because it got me to look at the good the bad and also the, the funny as well mate i absolutely love it and did you know that whenever richmond won the flag in maybe 2018 or something, one of the things they put it down to was they did a similar thing with their team regularly and it was Hero Hardship Highlight is what they called it. So similar concept, but if you don't mind, I might use sweet, sour and banana every now and again with some clients because, again, the concept is great and you use the word fantastic, connection. It's all yes. about creating connection, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. And it's the other thing is you can reflect on someone else's day as well as you can reflect on yours that's like connection does help us Great point. yeah it does it does help us be you know more one when it comes to our own experiences and learning and you don't have to just learn from your experience you can learn from others as well and and that's kind of the beauty of the connection there as well mate obviously you had a, a very very significant life-changing event in the shark attack i'm not going to sit here and say geez let's hope people have a shark attack have an event like that and it'll change their life so to speak like it has yours but we all have life-changing events, difficult circumstances in our life. With what you've been through and what you've learned on this journey, what sort of advice would you give to people who are experiencing tough times, been through life-changing events? Yeah, it's, it's funny. That kind of relates to a question that I get, I get asked a lot. It's like the question to a younger you. And it's not necessarily advice to a younger you, but I always say that I wouldn't believe the advice that I would give myself because I would love to sit down 12-year-old Brett and tell him everything I've been through and everything I've learned, but I don't think I truly would have understood it until I went through it for myself. And a big part of that is knowing that these setbacks that we have, these challenges that we have in life, they, they are part of being a human. Like We're not going to avoid them for our entire lives. And as bad as they can be in some circumstances, they are an opportunity to learn and they are an opportunity to grow, especially with time and especially with, you know, having the right people around you and, and going about it the right way. But I always say, like, I hope for a lot of people it's not a shark attack, but everyone will have their own version of a shark attack. And a big reason for wording it like that is because one thing that I don't want people to take away from my story when they hear it is when they're going through their own challenges is to look at me and be like, oh, what I'm going through is nothing because he got attacked by a shark. It's kind of like the starving kids in Africa clause because there are starving kids in Africa. There's always going to be someone worse off. But if we keep saying like, what about them? What about them? We're never going to truly be able to look at our own experience and what we're going through and to be able to act on that. So 
it's not about what happens to you. It's really about how you respond. And it does suck that the things that happen to us often, you know, they can be terrible. They can be tragic. They, they are not often a great time to go through, but what we can really do is focus on what, what we can do to bounce back. Um, how we can look at that situation in order to grow and to learn a little bit about ourselves and, and the world as well. Cause it's a, another one of my favorite quotes or the, my favorite things that I've, I've heard is that we've all got two lives and our second one real, our second one begins when we realize that we've only got one life and we'll all realize that at some stage. It's just about what you do with that information from thereafter that kind of defines the type of person that you'll be remembered as, you know, when it's all said and done. Have you ever reflected on why people don't take that perspective? Like we all only have one life. What we do with it, we have very much control over and what we can do with our life. What is it, do you think, where people don't take that opportunity? I think because there's no, because it is such an existential question that's posed, there's no true answer to it. Because it's not a formula that gets solved as soon as you realize that. Even for me, who's come so close to death and knows exactly what it's like to experience the fragility of life, I still find myself, you know, reflecting on a week and being like, did I make the most of that? Like, if it, or like, am I doing everything I can to be the person that I want to be? And the reality is that we, we can't expect ourselves to be like that at all times because we're, we're human. Like, humans are flawed. And that's part of the great thing about being a human in a way is that we'll never truly, truly understand it. And I was hearing something be described the other day about how insignificant we are as human beings when, you know, when you look at how lucky our planet is to be here, how lucky we are to be alive. Like even just looking at that, we should be grateful for every single day that we've got. And unfortunately, you have to go to a very, very dark place in realizing how insignificant and small we are in the grand scheme of things in order to realize how lucky we are. But again, I think the whole conundrum kind of is, is just a little bit too existential for us to really be able to act on it every single day because it is an emotionally intense thing to think about. And like, like I said, even for me, I, I don't have all the answers. Um, for, for me to, to share my story and, and talk about my experience, that's not the path that everyone's going to travel everyone's situation is different. Everyone's experiences are different. If I'm to tell you exactly what worked for me, I can't expect you to go and do the same things and achieve the same result. It's kind of just like giving you yesterday's lottery numbers. Like I, I know what works for me, but I think a lot of it comes back to, to purpose. And this is kind of what I've been focusing along a lot on lately is that for me, the experience got me to connect with what I really want out of life. And I'm, in a way, lucky to have had the shark attack because it's given me something unique to talk about where people will listen. And I would say the difference between the guy who was selling surfboards in a surf shop and the guy who can stand on stage and share his story is that I didn't have the opportunity to change someone's life selling a surfboard. Yeah, you can sell them something that they have a lot of fun on, but I now have an opportunity to change someone's life through my experience and, and my own story. And that's something that has crafted a new purpose for me. Whereas I lost the purpose of chasing the dream of becoming a pro surfer, I was gifted something else. And that's been a big driver for me to move forward. So these life-changing experiences that we do have, they can often get us to step back and look at our own life and what we want out of it and to, to reconnect or connect with our, our purpose in the first place. And 
we can't be expected to solve all the world's problems or to to do absolutely everything we can to leave the largest mark possible on the universe. But if we have a purpose that we can live towards every day, and whilst they might not be like, I'm not going to get up in front of a thousand people every single day and speak, I'd love to, but it's about those little steps as we spoke about earlier. If I'm doing something to try and connect with my purpose, whether it's a little bit of storytelling, whether it's a little bit of connection, whether it's a, a little bit of advice, then that'll all add up over time. And and I think at the end of your life, maybe you'll be able to look back on these pivotal moments and be like, for me, that was the fork in the road where I could have stayed doing what I was doing before, which is not a bad existence. But what I'm doing now is is a much better thing. And although I don't wake up every morning thinking like, this could be the last day, I better make the most of it. It's more just having the perspective on on what I've been through and, and connecting with that purpose that I spoke about, which has been a big a big shift for me. So that was definitely going a long way around the question, kind of circling it a bunch of times because I don't think there really is a correct answer to it. If there is, I'd, I'd love to hear it, but but it's, I suppose that's my my relationship with that question. I think you've done well, mate. You just you say circling, you were circling it like a shark, mate, weren't you? <laughs> Very metaphoric. <laughs> I guess it, it come, you know, that purpose, you know, very often talked about a lot, maybe un- not understood necessarily as much as it needs to be, but relates to impact. Is there a story that you have that comes to mind where you've actually been told you've had that impact on somebody already? There's probably two that I, I would link together. Um, I'll try and tell them in, in a slightly brief format because they're, they're both separate stories, but are, are important in each other. The first one would be the first time I actually shared my story, which was at a high school that one of my friends was working at. And this was about four months after the attack. So I hadn't got back in the water yet. And my friend reached out to me and he said, Hey, can you come and talk to the kids for Are You OK Day? And I knew the importance of Are You OK Day, especially after everything that I'd just been through. And I was like, yeah, I'll come along. I have no idea what I'm doing though. And he's like, just share whatever you want to just talk for a bit. They'll be interested. And I, I'm terrified of speaking like i still am now but I, I was even more then but i got up in front of there was probably 50 kids there and i just shared my story chronologically from where from the attack up until where i was so i hadn't even gotten the water yet and there was no real final like there was no finish to the story but i just shared it and then afterwards the teachers came up to me and they're like we've never seen those kids sit still for five minutes and 40 minutes there they were completely locked in and engaged and for me, that let me know that I had something that that was interesting, that was engaging, that gave me an opportunity to share. And that's what has defined my purpose and, and giving me a bit of direction in knowing that's what I want to do in speaking and sharing that story and, and hopefully helping other people. And that kind of led me further down the track to where I was doing more work in the mental health space, more work in speaking. And I actually made a goal of mine a couple of years ago to save someone's life. So I was working for a mental health training and education company at the time and we go into workplaces and I'd share my story, but then couple it with uh, like evidence-based mental health training and education. And there was one instance where we got some feedback from the company that we were working with where they said, you know, a couple of their, usually have like a fair bit of um, impact and you talk to people that say like, oh, it's really great hearing your story. I'm going to change these. And it was just a bit of feedback from a company saying that, you know, one of their workers had, they, they were going through a tough time. And I don't want to overshare too much about this because it is quite personal, but they, they were going through a tough time. And basically they were at a point where they were considering suicide and they were going to do it 
at work um, because it was such a terrible place for them. And they decided that, well, actually one of the people that had heard the talk, and it wasn't necessarily one about my story, it was more about the education that followed up, but it was a group that I'd spoken to. Someone saw that this person was struggling and started a very simple conversation with them and realized that they were struggling. And they actually asked the person the questions that they needed to ask, found out the, the condition that they were in, found out the situation they were in and got them out of work, connected them to the support that they needed. And it was, I remember just hearing that feedback and knowing that not only have I been able to connect with my story, but the stuff I've been able to speak about afterwards has potentially, or in that situation has saved someone's life because that's something, again, like I compare it to, you know, the, the guy that was selling surfboards in, in a surf shop before. I, I don't think I would have ever had that impact before. So. I think connecting with that that purpose got me to the point of having an impact probably greater than than what I would have expected even when I first set out to share my story and I think that's probably you know something that when I look back on is is always going to be a pretty big moment of mine when I think about the impact that one person can have on others because it's not necessarily about changing the world because you know you can only really change the world one person at a time and I always go in with the one person attitude of if everything I do just helps one person, then it is all worth it. And that's, I suppose, one example where, where that's come true. And I'm very, very proud of, of being able to be a part of that. Yeah. Great stories, mate. Thanks for sharing. I want to go back to the goal side of things. So you achieved this goal of surfing and goals are so important. How does what you've just shared potentially relate to what was your next goal? What was your next big, hairy, audacious goal that you set? So. It's funny, like a lot of my goals were based around surfing at the start. I got back in the water and then it was more like, okay, where, where can I go? Like, can I surf to this level? And then it was eventually to get back and compete. And it was only 12 months after that I was competing in the same competitions that I had before. And I was really, really proud to be there, but also I was at a point of reflection where I asked myself, like, did I really go through everything that I just went through to become the person that I was beforehand? And that was another fork in the road where I said, well, if I do have the option to keep surfing, that's great. And that's the decision that I can make. Or I can have a little bit more of a, a look forward and say, what sort of impacts can I have with my story, with my speaking to, to try and help other people? And that, that became, you know, a, a bit more of a broad goal as far as, you know, using the sport, the story to help other people. And that's probably more of my purpose rather than an actual goal itself so it's more what goals can i set to try to achieve that so it was learning a little bit more about speaking and then it was just getting on stage um and then it was you know setting a certain amount of talks that i wanted to do per year um so a lot of it has been around sort of those storytelling goals like i i started off as a very raw unaccomplished speaker that that really struggled with the craft of speaking and i'd like to think that i've improved a bit since i started but it was really about being able to prove that i could not only just deliver something effective on stage but then to be able to make a living out of it and that's something that i do today is a, a very big one as well but those goals have continued to develop over time um it was you know growing the speaking through you know, how many people i could you know, how many talks i could do in a year and stuff like that and Again, that wasn't something that really drove me as far as, you know, I, I, I didn't, it was all worth it if I could help that one person. It wasn't necessarily about, I need to speak to as many people as possible, but it was more just about growth and getting those reps up on stage. And 
you know, that overarching goal kind of changed at a certain point because I had a realization that there's probably only a certain amount of time that I can share my story for before I'm some 40, 50 year old bloke sharing a story about when he got attacked by a shark when he was 22. So I started trying to look a little bit ahead of that. And that's what has led me to make the movie on my story. So I wanted to create a documentary just on my story and, and the things that I've learned from it. So the story's out there. Um, and I know that'll help my speaking in one way or another, but the big goal there is because I know the importance of storytelling that I wanted to start my own production company to build this documentary under. So I have the opportunity to help other people share their stories in, in the same sort of way. So I think those goals have been really important in getting me to the point of realizing that purpose of mine. Cause I always kind of break it down purpose, goals, daily actions. They're, they're kind of, well, you know, you can break them down monthly actions or whatever, but what you do daily, weekly, monthly to go towards those longer term goals, which serve your higher purpose of what you want to achieve in life. So I'd say I'm probably more purpose driven than I am goals driven as far as what I truly care about, but the goals help me get there. We're certainly going to touch and have a bit of a chat around the doco coming out in the not too distant future. What I'd like to know is in all of this stuff that's happened, you know, the, the attack, but everything you've done since then, if you could boil it down to a lesson, what, what has been this greatest lesson for you? The greatest lesson for me is it is, I mean, I know I'm going back to it, but it means so much to me. It is around purpose. Having a reason to do something is better than doing it for the sake of doing it. Not only is that going to give you fulfillment when you look back on on why you did something and the importance of being able to achieve something, but it helps you take that first step in the first place anyway. If you have something that you truly care about, and I know a lot of people get stuck on on what purpose means to them because they often think that you have to be, you know, you look at all these famous people, all these prominent people that have this purpose that seems so far beyond what you hope to to get out of life. And people often don't realize that anyone can have a purpose. It, purpose is a bit of a buzzword that is a good way of describing what means a lot to you. Everyone knows what means a lot to them in life. And it doesn't always have to be something that is necessarily, you know, everyone thinks about it in like a business context. It is important when it comes to business because we have to survive. And if we can do something we truly care about that is through purpose in order to, you know, justify our existence through our work, then that's great. But purpose can be spending time with family. Like purpose can be having an activity or something that you truly care about. But it's about making that part of your life because if we can start to fulfill our purposes, it doesn't always have to have, you know, a monetary benefit attached to it. A lot of the purposes that people will probably look back on what mean the most to them are the ones that, you know, are the, the small things in life. And this kind of goes back to the key in, in sweet sour banana is to look at the little things that you do. Like I, I became really interested and kind of empowered by gratitude itself because like gratitude is something that a lot of people do to look at the things that they're truly grateful for in life. And a lot of people, if you ask them to do gratitude for a week, they'll probably write down things like, you know, my family, where I live and my health. And they'll just write that in three different orders for an entire week. The key with gratitude is to look at the little things that make you smile, the little things that make you feel whole. And I think that's one thing when I, I look at purpose and try and explain it to people is it doesn't have to be this enormous picture that you might find that eventually. And if you do have that, that's great. But for purposes, it's really just the reason to get out of bed every day. If you want to be happy and that's your sole purpose, then, then what are you going to do in order to, to make you smile? If your purpose is to, to raise a family, then 
well, A, you've got to have the family in the first place. <laughs> if you have a family and you want to put a lot of time and effort into it, okay, how do you create time within work and within life to, to be able to spend time with them and to, to teach your kids the things you want to teach them and to be there for your partner? And I think purpose and, and happiness is something that, you know, I, I'd, I'd like everyone to, to take away as far as what I really take out of life is, it's it's the little things every single day for me. It was the, although I do have these these grand plans that I'd love to be able to achieve one day, I wake up every morning, I go for a swim, I write down the things I'm grateful for, and I'm incredibly happy to be able to do that. You mentioned about the documentary coming out. Tell us roughly when it's due out, who's bringing it out, and tell us a bit about it in a nutshell. Yeah, so the the documentary has been a a long long process to get it to to this point. Bit of backstory. Um, it started off as a five minute, it was meant to be a five minute sort of preview that I would show before I do my, my talks just to give it a bit of context. And I was working with a friend of mine on it and we showed it to a few people and they were like, no, there's, you got to do more than five minutes. It doesn't do it justice. And it kind of grew into like 20 minutes and, and just we we're like, well, if we're doing more and more, we may as well just do a feature length, which, you know, as we got to that point, I was like, okay, cool. Like we're actually doing it. I mean, I've always had people say you should write a book. And I'm like, everyone writes a book. I want to do something a little bit different. I think there's there's still room, I suppose, for a book at some point in the future, but the film felt right to me just due to the way that we started with it and and sort of finding a, a good way to tell my story. It's funny, there's probably two, two questions I get asked a lot when it comes to the film itself, which is uh, why now and why are you doing it yourself? And they're both linked. So I had opportunities early on to you know, sell my story to a network who wanted to do like a, a fear piece on sharks about a shark attack and stuff like that. And that never sat right with me early on because I knew that I wanted to do something, you know, I've always had a positive relationship with sharks regard, like despite what I've been through. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I, I respect sharks a lot for how good they are, what they do. They're amazing creatures and because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time doesn't mean that, you know, I think of them in a negative way. So because I had that mindset, I didn't want them to be portrayed that way. I didn't want to do that piece early on. Um, but I also didn't want to do something by myself early on because I didn't know what I was doing. But then I also didn't think that my story was at a point where I was willing to share it yet. I didn't want it to just be about the attack. I wanted it to be about something other than that. And then also I realized that when I was sharing my story up on stage i was always doing you know always sharing other people's perspectives on it as well like what what joel was seeing from his point of view when he was watching the attack unfold like what my parents had been through what it was like from different different people that i've met along the way and i wanted to give those people a platform to be able to share their point of view and their perspective as well so as things grew uh we we kind of included all those different perspectives but didn't want it to just be attack recovery. We wanted it to be attack recovery, but then what afterwards? So I'd had another thing that I was looking to do for, for years, which was to paddle between Molokai and Oahu, which are two islands in Hawaii. They're 54 kilometers apart. And when I say paddle, it's important to specify on, on what type of craft. So I paddle it on a 12 foot prone paddleboard, uh, which is similar to what you see in the surf club boards except it has like a hull bottom so it's a lot more unstable they're a bit longer generally quicker through the water but a lot harder to get used to riding that was a challenge that appealed to me for a, diff a few different reasons um, i liked the idea of the physical challenge and something about people who've been through some sort of 
you know, physical crisis in life where they want to manifest that with that with some sort of challenge. And I've done other ones. I've walked a hundred kilometers and I've run a marathon, but this one seemed to be one that culminated the the reason for doing that alongside the cultural significance of doing this thing in Hawaii, like the birthplace of surfing. There's a lot of surfers that have completed this paddle. Not only that, but the the Molokai Channel or the Kaiwi Channel as it's called in Hawaiian is two and a half thousand foot deep. It's incredibly deep. When you're in the middle of that channel, you feel like a speck. And there's a lot of big creatures in there, understandably. So it's overcoming fear. It's overcoming um, the physical challenge. It puts a lot into not only preparing for it, but but doing it as well. So we wanted to showcase what it was like to use the things that I'd learned through my recovery in parallel with what that experience in, in doing the paddle was like. And there's a lot of things that I did learn throughout the recovery that actually helped me be able to do it, not only just in the preparation, which is kind of like that day-to-day training and, and the rehab sort of side of things, but then the mindset to actually get through it. And that that seemed like a perfect thing to put into this whole documentary and, and to, to do it that way because it does really, it brings you to the present day. It brings you to, you know, it's not just this one thing that happened to me, but but what I've learned from that and how to use it in other parts of life because that's what everyone else is looking for, right? When you hear a story, it's like, how, how does this apply to me? And again, it's probably not going to be a shark attack and a recovery from that. A lot of people probably aren't going to choose to paddle the Kaivia channel after watching this, and I, I probably wouldn't necessarily want to do it again. But it's about using, having a bit more of a proactive approach to the challenges that we, we face in life and, and using the experience of yourself and the experience of others to try and overcome that. So that's, that was kind of the process of, of putting this film together. And it's probably been three years since that first five minute video, um, and a bunch of different iterations and, and a, a few different ways of going about it. And I mentioned earlier as well, my willingness to want to, like help other people share their stories so this was going to be the platform where we could produce a film ourselves in order to be a bit of a launch pad for doing that down the track so it does tick a lot of boxes as far as my purpose goes and why i want to do it and it's at a point now where we're really really close to finishing um we've got a it will be on stand in australia which i'm really excited about as well because i there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into you know how people are going to see it that's kind of like that that pathway from the concept of it and how people are going to view it in the end, which is very uncertain at the start. And as you get someone that buys into it and wants to show it and wants other people to see it, it is it's really reassuring knowing that that people are going to be able to view it and it's not just something that we're going to make as a, a passion project. It is really cool that it is going to be out there. Um, it will be released on the, the 9th of March um, on Stan. So that's been a really cool process to kind of go through not only the experience of doing the paddle for myself and, and doing the whole film, but learning a lot about filmmaking. Um, I actually, not a, apart from producing it, I was directing it as well, which meant that I was conducting all the interviews, which is a strange way to do this type of thing. Like I was interviewing my parents about their perspective on me, which was really, I, I liked that process because uh, it was a good learning curve, but it also got, it was almost like a, an inquisitive thing for me where I could learn more about my attack and because I'm the one asking the questions, I can kind of find out more. And I, I definitely learned a lot more that I didn't know before, which is a really cool experience too. So there was a lot of things about this whole process, which have been, it's been very consuming. Um, it's been very grueling to get it to this point. But I think when it's all done, I'll be incredibly proud to have something to show for my story, which I can put out in the world and, and be proud of and, and know that it's going to do some good things out there. Yeah, mate, I, I can't wait to 
watch it. I'm super excited. And actually, you're a man who does things differently anyway. And I just love that. First time I knew that, what you've just said about you were conducting interviews as well. I think that's a fantastic angle. What better way to having lived through what you've lived, but then asking the questions based on that experience you've lived. That would be a great learning opportunity as you've indicated. Yeah. A couple of times you mentioned the word fear obviously comes out and then overcoming that fear. Have you reflected on what do you think has helped you better overcome fear or better manage fear? There's probably a couple of things. Um, rational or irrational fears is probably the first place to start. Like, and this, this goes back to like, I have recently started a lot of my talks with uh, in my presentations and keynotes with talking about fear and saying fear is something that we all grapple with in different ways in different parts of life. I talk to people about fear all the time. And there's two very common fears that tend to come back when, when I, you know, ask people, you know, what are your common fears? And the, the two main ones are public speaking and being attacked by an animal of sorts. And I say, like, I've obviously, I've, I'm doing one of them now by speaking. <laughs> That's one I do by choice. The other one happened by chance. Um, but there's something about fear where you can look at the rational fear of, you know, a lot of people would say that going, you know, the shark attack or the animal attack is a rational fear because it's something that we're not used to as humans. But then you look at statistics and all of that and, you know, you, you can start to bring in that ir irrational argument as well. But the big reason for, for bringing that up and then also with getting up on stage and speaking and overcoming that fear is why, why you would do it. And that does again link back to purpose. Um, for me, it's worth standing on stage and sweating and, and worrying about what I'm going to say and stumbling through my sentences because of what it can give me in the end. Same thing as getting back in the water. A lot of people assume the fear was going back in the water because that's where sharks are. For me, the bigger fear was about what type of surfer I was going to be. If I was going to be able to stand up on a surfboard, how far could I, I push it? Because that was such a big part of, of who I was. And that for me, it was almost like the fear of failure rather than the fear of the shark or the thing that people assume you to be you know, afraid of. And that, I would say, that fear of failure was an irrational fear because it was something that regardless of if I was able to stand up or whatever, I talked about the importance of setting those goals. I'd already accomplished so much up until that point that the outcome didn't really matter to me. So it does depend a lot on what the fear is. If it is dangerous, if it is not, is probably one thing that's important to weigh up. But I think if we can reflect on our purpose and, and why we are actually choosing to to go into this position of fear, then it does help us at least make a, a more informed decision of of why we're doing it, but then how we go about it as well. Because fear, overcoming fear isn't always just diving in headfirst. That's probably the slightly more irresponsible way of doing things. But if you can slowly, you know, work your way up to it. I didn't go and speak in front of a group of 500 people the first time I got up on stage. Like my first time was to that group of, of 40 students and that was a good introduction and things slowly grew from there. So overcoming fears, yes, it is about taking that first step, but it's about finding the way that that's right for you. Because one thing that you don't want is to, to be afraid of something and just do it for the sake of doing it and then have an outcome that stops you from doing it in the future. So having an open mind into what you're going into, I think is, is really important. But the the other thing that I learned from that is looking at other people and, and how other people grapple with fear. There's a lot of inspiration that you can gain from how other people go about their own things in life that, you know, when I was talking to the surfer that gave me the advice earlier on about improving yourself every day, 
I looked at what he was going through and that helped me with my fear of like what what was the surfer that I was going to be when I got back in the water. So there are other people that have been through their own different struggles or, or their own different circumstances or situations that you can use as a bit of a reflection point to to see how how it works and to kind of work through that through the lens of someone else I think was also pretty important. So yeah, fear fear is something that we'll all encounter. Fear is something that is different for everyone. Like uh, my fears are no longer shark related. It's no longer getting back in the water and, and, you know, being attacked by an animal or something like that. My fear still is getting up on stage and, and speaking, but my bigger fear now is, is probably looking back when, you know, I'm towards the end of my life and, and not knowing that I made the most of this opportunity that I had. And, and that is a, a big driver that I have today to step outside of that comfort zone and to face those fears head on, I suppose. Yeah. Well done, mate. Although I have to say, I reckon there'd be plenty of people listening or watching on YouTube who would say that is a massive step talking in front of 40 students. That'd be a pretty tough gig, wouldn't it? You'd rather speak of in front of 500 adults, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, that's, yeah. And that, that was the reason I, I look back to the reason I did it in the first place. It was for Are You OK Day. It was because it was a topic that I cared about that, that I had the purpose in. And that's, that's what got me to overcome that. And it wasn't easy. That, that was the hardest one. That one was harder than, you know, the, the biggest audience that I've ever had. So it is all about where you are in, in, you know, relation to, to what that fear is as well. Mate, people who connect with you, get to know you and who are going to hear and watch your story and where that's going through the documentary on Stan, you're inspiring a lot of people and you've got the opportunity to inspire a lot more people into the future. Who inspires you? I get inspired by anyone with a story, honestly, and you don't have to look far for, for a story. Um, now, I think a lot of people often look at you know the the top of society, whether that be on social media or whoever, like the the famous people to be inspired. And there are some inspiring people up there, but I get just as inspired by you know the the bloke down the road who's maintaining his garden because it's the thing he cares about the most, as I do about anyone there. Like there's there's a lot of people that I I look to, and a, a big part of that for me is forces me to step outside of my comfort zone a little bit to have conversations with people like that because it is slightly out of my nature to you know to delve into someone else's life and to learn more about them and that that's been something that I've been trying to do through the journal is interviewing people and interviewing people that I don't know in order to to learn a bit more but you can be inspired by so many different things out there you know I I look up to a lot of people not only within my life like I always say like my biggest hero is is my dad because of not only what he's done in in life but the lessons that he's taught me and everyone like that's a question that i like to ask people as well because it's interesting to hear people's answer and an inspiration for someone can be you know that's why i think it's important to talk about these people because you know if, if we can find someone that is accessible that you can talk to that you can you can actually physically be like actually bounce off when it comes to who you're inspired by i think that's super valuable and it doesn't always have to be you know, these people that you can't necessarily reach you can still be inspired by them but i think being able to interact with that inspiration is a, a good way of helping us explore it a little bit deeper makes a lot of sense mate let's do some sweet sour banana moment we're looking into the future so 12 months time the end of 2023 you're writing your journal your yearly journal what do you hope is the greatest sweet moment in the year um the sweet i mean it's going to be hard to look past releasing the documentary just because it's been a lot of time and a lot of effort that goes into it 
I have looked at this year as a big year of growth, not only just in, in my work and, you know, the documentary and speaking, but a lot of personal growth as well. So I, I would hope to look back and know that I've, I've done a lot to grow and I've done a lot to learn and, and hopefully 2024 is, is going to be bigger again. But yeah, I'd say the suite would probably look to be the, the documentary. I'm going to make this a little bit harder because I don't want you to say that you hope the sour moment is not the documentary. Yeah. Let's do something else. But we don't hope for sour, but what do we hope doesn't go sour in the year? That's a bit harder. Um, I would say the thing that I hope doesn't go sour is probably the I, – I look at the things that I want to achieve long-term and there's there's things that I hope to get at the end, which is, you know, time to spend with the people I love. And I do luckily have time at the moment to do that, even though I'm in a position where things are building. So I would hope that as I get busy with all that other stuff, that I don't lose sight of of that because it's something that truly means a lot to me. And I, I want to make sure that it is a big priority to know that the things that I'm feeling now are going to be just as important in six or 12 months time as they are to me at the moment. So that'd be the thing that I hope for. Yeah, I hope for that too, mate, because when I ask you in 12 months to sit down with me, you're like, no, no, Brendan, you're too small now. I'm, I'm much bigger than that. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to do that to me, mate. Is that what you're saying? No, no chance. No chance. I just realized before that I'm episode 99 and I, I thought I was going to get get on for the ton, but <laughs> well, I'll have to come on for episode 200. Look, pot- yeah, potentially you won't be episode 99. You'll be a little bit forward because we'll have to align this with the documentary. But oh, there you anyway, go. <laughs> that's, uh, that's yet to be decided, mate. We'll see how we go. <laughs> So let's uh, let's get on to the banana moment, mate. What do you hope is the banana moment for 2023? Oh, um, I'm going to America next week. And of all places that I'm going to, I'm going to Kansas. So I'm going there to shoot a pilot for a TV show that, I, that I'm working on as kind of our next project. And um, I don't think Kansas is the first place I would have picked when I was saying that I'm going to the US. And I think it'll be a, an interesting and an eye-opening experience. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of funny things to come out of that. Mate, I can't wait to hear more. It sounds like <laughs> quite an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> mate, what's had the the greatest impact on yourself becoming a more confident leader? It's probably knowing that people are, are always watching. Like I, I think it's important to, you know, having good intentions and, and speaking about things is great, but if you can back it up with actions and, and kind of just acting like people are always going to notice if you're living to the person that you want to be. I think that's an important thing for me. And that's something that I've learned is that, you know, it, it's great to to say all these nice things that I say on a podcast, but if I don't back it up by going out and, you know, living by my purpose and, you know, doing all those things I spoke about, which is, you know, the important thing on going over to do the paddle for the documentary is to have that bit of accountability as well. But it's not just those big things in life. It, it really is the person that you are on a daily basis. Like, I really love the connection. Like I, I grew up in a small town and I love the connection of, of talking to people and, you know, walking down the street and saying good morning to everyone and knowing that you never become someone who feels too good for that is, is important. And I know that's probably an extreme case that, that, you know, you wouldn't get too often. But I think the big thing is to, to know that you're just as important to the person down the road as someone on the other side of the world is, is something that means a lot to me, especially with how connected we are now. And, you know, whether that's how you act online or how you act when you're going for a walk, I think is really important. So the type of person that you want to be is the type of person that you should be acting like every single day. Couldn't agree more, mate. Massive thank you, mate. It's been a pleasure. And I met you, it's it's almost 12 months ago now, and we were saying mm. 
pre-recording. We haven't had a chance to talk too much there. We've been back and forth. You've been busy and you know, we're all doing our different things, but we've been setting this up for some time having you on the podcast. So I'm so happy and glad that we've had the opportunity to do it um, in line with the upcoming release of the documentary, mate. You're a, I know when I first met you, we had a great conversation in the at the event we were at, we spent some time on a panel together and you know, great. It's not just a story. You're a, a pretty decent human being. You've obviously had a fantastic upbringing. Your parents have set a fantastic example and your, your family unit. So I was super excited to chat today. You haven't disappointed, thankfully. I hate people who disappoint, but you definitely haven't disappointed, mate. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing the story. But more importantly, thanks for sharing what you've taken from that and how you're actually having an impact, a real impact on people and, and helping them think about their own journey. So Mate, you've been a fantastic guest on the cultural leadership today. Thank you. Not a problem. Thanks, and thanks for thanks for sticking by me for over the twelve months and, and making it happen. It was um, it was great to reconnect and, and be able to share a bit. Absolute pleasure, buddy. What would you do if you were told you could never again do your all time favorite activity? Personally, I like to think I'd act with at least some of the courage and resilience Brett did, but honestly, I'm not sure. He was told he would never surf again. His first true love, gone. It was tough. He took it in his stride. With support from his inner circle, he aimed high. He's not only surfing again, he's developed into a leader who impacts people's lives. Brett's sweetest moment for 2023 is coming soon. Attacking Life, a documentary he directed and produced, is due for release on Stan on the 9th of March 2023. It's an intimate exploration into Brett's mind and body, living life with a second chance. Make sure you check it out. These are my three key takeaways from my conversation with Brett. My first key takeaway, leaders set lofty goals, not only for themselves, but also for their team. They foster a belief in their own and their team's greatest potential. This leads them to setting lofty goals. My second key takeaway, leaders concentrate on the little things. They seek out daily small improvements. They know this adds up to big improvements over time which is why leaders always stay focused and concentrate on the little things. My third key takeaway, leaders know circumstances don't define them. It's how you respond to the situation that determines the outcome. Leaders who understand this build resilience and can adapt quickly. This leads to personal and professional success. That's why leaders don't allow circumstances to define them. So in summary, my three key takeaways were, leaders set lofty goals. Leaders concentrate on the little things, and leaders know circumstances don't define them. What were your key takeaways? You can send me a comment at thecultureofleadership.com, on YouTube, or via our socials. Thanks for joining me, and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thanks for listening to The Culture of Leadership. You can access the show notes at thecultureofleadership.com. If you enjoy the show, please follow, rate, and give a review on your favorite podcast platform.